Well, I want to begin today with a question, and I'd like you to raise your hand if you would answer yes to this. Do you have any regrets in life? Anybody? Yeah, most, most of us have regrets. I remember seeing a movie, I don't remember exactly, I think it was my teens or early 20s, and there was a guy, he got a tattoo right along his collarbone, and it said, no regrets, R-A-G-R-E-T-S, and all sorts of people ask him, really? Not one, not one regret. Um, we, I think we all end up with regrets at some point. And what's interesting is that scientists, because they have time to do this, have started studying how our regrets change. And when we're, we're near to a moment that we regret, what we tend to regret is uh, bad decisions, words that we wish we could have back, you know, things we go, oh man, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't say that. Ah, we regret the d- decisions we made. But over time, our regret changes And in the long term, what we regret the most are missed opportunities. The things that we could have done, that we should have done, but we no longer can do. Because opportunities in life are like the gallon of milk in your fridge. They have expiration dates. They don't last forever. And one of my regrets, as I was thinking about this week, has to do with tools. When I was a kid, my dad would say, hey, Scott, do you want to come out and work on the car, fix the oil? Hey, do you want to learn how to fix the toilet? Hey, do you want to work on this? And my answer was always no, because I had better things to do. I wanted to watch shows or read books, play with my friends. The problem is I'm now a homeowner, and all the things my dad tried to teach me how to do, I don't know how to do, and I either have to call somebody else to pay them to do it, or I have to screw it up myself. Um... (laughs) And it's always good to watch the YouTube video before you work on the project, but I don't always do it in that order. And so a couple years ago, my wife had a honeydew list up on the grease board in the kitchen, and I was getting ready to tackle one of those projects. And as I was getting my tools together, she turned to me and she said, do you remember how this went the last time? Because we were supposed to put two holes in the wall to hang up this picture, but we ended up with four or five. And so she encouraged me. I called a buddy. We worked out. We only had two tools. We only had two holes. It was a great project. But as I think about that project, my my mind goes to a tool bench. Maybe you have one like this in your house. This is what I call a type A tool bench. Everything has its place. Some of you are elbowing the person you're sitting next to going, yours should be that organized. Um, But all of us, whether we're handy or not, we have a set of tools like this. And they are the things that we turn to to help us navigate life. When we run into a problem, and it's not always a plumbing problem or a home problem, when we run into a problem in life, we reach for something to help us navigate that problem. And, and for all of us, we have something that gives us some sense of hope as we navigate the things that come our way. There's a writer that I was reading recently remark on the time that we're living in, and he noted that he believes that we're living through a crisis of hope. And he listed a number of reasons why he has that belief. I'm just going to share a couple with you today. There was new data that was released this week about American high school students. Here's what the data showed. Since 2009, moving to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. 
If you translate that out of math speak, what that means is that one in two American high school students today isn't just having a bad day from time to time. They're not just struggling with the challenges of being a teenager. They're feeling persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. And, and for some of you, you know some of the reasons why. You think about your generation and whatever age you are, there is a change happening that is new within the last 100 or 200 years. If you're a parent or a grandparent, unlike your parents and your grandparents, as you look to the future, some of you are thinking that your kids or your grandkids are not going to have a better life than you had. You're worried that they're going to have a worse life. That's hopelessness. And it isn't just a young people problem or the next generation problem. In 2015, two Princeton economists got into the weeds of the data sets of who is dying and at what rate in our culture. And this was seven years ago. So this data is even a little bit dated. And what they found is that unlike every other age group, unlike every other racial and ethnic group, unlike their counterparts in other rich countries, death rates among middle-aged white Americans have been rising and not falling. And the reason why these death rates are rising is being driven by, quote, an epidemic of suicides and afflictions stemming from substance abuse. Young people, middle-aged people, not just people who are impoverished and dealing with the anxiety and stress that comes from that, but people who are wealthy. And, And what this shows us is it doesn't matter how old you are, It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how resourceful you are. When you experience a crisis of hope, you have a great need to recapture that hope or life will be difficult to continue and live. And I'll tell you as a pastor, I have found that hopelessness is not something you can insulate yourself with by great net worth. Hopelessness strikes all of us, no matter how much we have in the stock market or in our checking account. And when you find yourself in the middle of a crisis of hope, that is not an economic problem. It is an existential problem. And I bring this up today because if you could define or attach one word to Easter Sunday, it would be hope. This day is the center point of the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. So if you got that sermon note sheet when you walked in and you want to take notes today, here's our big idea. The resurrection of Jesus is the answer for people experiencing a crisis of hope. If you're somebody who's walking through a crisis of hope today, I want to talk to you about the answer to that crisis that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus and hope have three realities about them that I want to talk to you about today. And here's the first reality. Resurrection hope, first and foremost, isn't just about the future. It's also about the present. It isn't just that this hope of the resurrection of Jesus gives us some sense that's a good vibe or a good feeling or hope for one day after we die or in the distant future. No, it also speaks to today. 
And to talk about that, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, to open up to the book of John. If you've been around Cornerstone the last few weeks, you've been hanging out in John all throughout our road to Easter. If you're new to the Bible, that's totally cool. John is in the second section of the Bible, known as the New Testament. That section starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John was one of the closest followers of Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, John sat down to write out what happened, what was said, and what he experienced so that we, those who weren't there, would know who Jesus was and, in John's words, could find hope and life in the name of Jesus. We're not going to start with the resurrection of Jesus today, but we're going to get there. We're going to start with a moment where a family was living through a crisis of hope, a family that once included two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, But the reason they have a crisis of hope is that Lazarus has died. And we pick up the story in verse 17. Beginning in verse 17 of John 11, it says, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, in this world, it's different than ours. You don't ever bury somebody in our world the day they die. There's a few number of days they either cremate them or prepare the body. In their day, you you bury them almost instantly. So either that day or the following day. So this would have been four days after his death. Bethany, where they were, was a city near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went to him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died yet Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So for Martha, she had some sense of hope. And it was a resurrection hope, but it wasn't a present hope. It was just a future hope that one day he would be resurrected. Because in that day, the two dominant views in that part of the world could be defined this way. That there was either no hope for resurrection, you died and that was it. Or there was a resurrection at the end that was far in the distant future. And so when Jesus starts talking to Martha, she reflects this view. And in many ways, the world has radically changed, but these two views remain. There are some people who believe you die, that's it, the light goes out, everything goes back in the box, and that's it. There are others who believe, yeah, there is some hope, but it's only for the end. It's only for after you die, it's only at the end of time. But what we're going to see from Jesus is that the hope he was going to offer this family was not just a future hope. It was also a present hope. I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you burdened by today? This family's burdens were very easy to see. Your burdens aren't so easy to see. When you walked in today, I couldn't see them. They were invisible. Now, maybe somebody who knows you very well could notice. People who know me well know I'm burdened by my face looks how I walk, my body language. Sometimes people who are very perceptive can notice our burdens, but for the most part, our burdens go on with us invisibly. They're with us when we lie down and go to sleep. 
Maybe that's when you wake up in the morning. And it is the burdens that you're carrying today that I hope this message speaks to. Because the hope that Jesus offered is for today, not just one day in the distant future. That's the first reality. The second reality is that the, re- the resurrection of Jesus is not just an event, it's a person. It isn't just an event, but we'll talk about it as an event. It's also a person. And here's what Jesus says in response to Mary saying, yeah, I know Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day. Here's what Jesus says next. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. See, this is weeks, perhaps months, before Jesus would be crucified and resurrected. And before he was resurrected, Jesus pointed to himself as the source of resurrection and life. He isn't just saying, hey, there's an event coming where I'm going to be the resurrection. He's saying, I am the resurrection. Look to me as your source of hope. Look to me as your source of life. Look to me in the present as as your resurrection hope. And friends, this is why what happened on Friday was so devastating. This is why for them, they would have never called it Good Friday. They would have called it Dark Friday, Hopeless Friday, Terrible Friday, the worst Friday ever, because for them, the source of their hope died. And they experienced total and complete hopelessness. The one who they had put all their hope in, the one who held all of their expectation was brutally beaten and executed by the most powerful empire on earth. And for them, hope died on Friday. I asked you earlier, what's your burden? My next question for you is, is what's your source of hope? See, life will eventually destroy your hope. Ernest Hemingway said that life breaks all of us. Bless you. And when life breaks you, when life shows up uninvited and unannounced and shatters you, takes your sense of how the future was going to go and rips it to pieces, where do you reach for hope? What's the tool you grab to help you navigate that season? What's the thing that you reach to or depend on to solve the problem that you're facing? See, what Jesus came to do is to say, hey, in this world, you will have trouble. Some people think that if you're a follower of Jesus or you believe in the Bible, somehow you're going to get insulated from life. I'm sorry. That's not how it goes. There is no get out of life, pain-free, struggle-free, battle-free. We're all going to experience grief and pain and loss. And if Jesus is the Son of God, God in flesh, and he was brutally executed or murdered, and you're his follower, you should not expect to find a primrose, 
yellow brick road path. But you will need hope. And that's the third reality. That the resurrection of Jesus is a living hope that leads to hopeful living. The resurrection is a living hope that leads to hopeful living. I told you we would eventually get to the story of the resurrection, and that moment is now. And so if you have your Bible open, turn a couple books to the front and go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew and John were followers of Jesus who spent three years with him. Mark and Luke interviewed those who were followers of Jesus. And these four biographies, we call them the Gospels, tell us the story of the life and teaching of Jesus. And in Matthew 28, Matthew records what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. Beginning in verse 1, he writes, After the Sabbath, which was Saturday, as the first day of the week was dawning, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now wait. They went to view the tomb. What did they expect? To find a dead Jesus. They went with material to prepare his body for long-term burial. None of them, even the ones who went to the tomb, were expecting resurrection. It was a surprise to them. And in verse 2 we read, There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, this angel, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by the fear of him that they became like dead men. Really burly dudes, but they fainted. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. They're looking for a dead, buried Jesus. But he's not here, for he is risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay, past tense. What happens in the hours and days and weeks to come is that all 11 remaining disciples, a total of 500 people, see, touch, and eat with Jesus. Their experience was so shocking and surprising and compelling that many of these people who were uneducated, poor, and far from influential are somehow in a short period transformed into bold, compelling, articulate, visionary leaders. And in the weeks and the months and the years to come, the Roman Empire does all they can to put down this rising movement out of Israel. Ten of those 11 remaining disciples are brutally beaten and executed because they refused to deny what they saw and experienced. They said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And in the next book after John, the book of Acts, which records the early history of the church, we see what they sounded like. In Acts 4, it says, so the leaders called for them, that's Peter and John, And they ordered them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Would you guys just please shut up about Jesus? And Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you, rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Not what we're supposed to say. Not what we feel obligated to say. But because what we have been an eyewitness to, we cannot stop talking about. 
Years later, in a letter that he would write to a group of churches and Jesus followers, Peter himself would say in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It wasn't that they believed a set of principles and tenets that they had been told and were obligated to believe. They had experienced Jesus being crucified, buried, and resurrected, and encountering Jesus filled them with such hope that they defied the most powerful empire on earth, even in the face of death. Their living hope led them to hopeful living. So now we come to my third question. I've asked you what you're burdened by. I've asked you what your source of hope is. Now I want to ask you, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because you have a choice today. And I'm going to give you the most honest question first, or the most honest response first. For some of you, your choice is going to be, you're going to treat Jesus and his followers as nutcases. Some of you sitting here today, maybe you were invited by a friend. You were promised coffee and a cinnamon roll. Well, you got it. And you've listened to me. And now you're like, Scott, I think you're nuts. I can't believe in the 21st century you would believe that God came in human flesh, was killed, and then resurrected. I can't believe you believe that. You're nuts. All of you are nuts. And that's your choice. You're welcome for the coffee and the cinnamon roll. It's your choice. But let me ask you to, to think about this for a second. This is not the words of a pastor. These are the words of a rock star who said either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. Some of you don't get that. You're too young. Some of you do get that. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. That's Bono, the lead singer of U2. And he would say, hey, you can believe that he's a nutcase, but then you have to explain the last 2,000 years of history and the world going in an entirely different direction, all because of a very powerful and influential nutcase. But that's your choice. Second option you could take is you could do your homework. And you can make your own decision about the resurrection of Jesus. And let me tell you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, I'd encourage you, go straight to the resurrection. Don't waste your time researching anything else yet. As former atheist Lee Strobel said, even as an atheist, I understood one thing about Christianity. It rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. This is the whole ballgame. The Apostle Paul, who was himself a denier of Jesus, said later that if the resurrection didn't happen, we are to be pitied among all mankind. We have misled everyone. We are still in our sins, and we have no hope. That's the stakes of the resurrection. Bart Ehrman is an atheist New Testament scholar. What that means is that he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in Jesus but he studies the Bible. And he's an expert at that. And here's what he said about this. 
He said, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it, both those who believed in Jesus and those who didn't. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and on an even more fundamental level, the very understanding billions of people had of what it means to be human. Because the ideas that we have of what it means to be human, the, the ideas that human life has dignity and value, that every per- person has worth from birth, that people should be treated equally and fairly, those were not Roman values. Those were values that were introduced 2,000 years ago by Jesus and his followers. Ermon concludes, however one evaluates the merits of the case, translation, he doesn't believe in the resurrection. No one can deny that it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. So you can be like Bart and deny the resurrection, but what you can't deny is that the last 2,000 years are impossible to tell without the followers of Jesus and the teachings that he gave them and they carried on. It's impossible to explain the last 2,000 years of world history and what changed if you don't talk about Jesus. So I'd encourage you to do your homework. I could begin by heading out to the lobby today. We've got a free Bible up there if you don't have one. And I'd encourage you to start reading the book of John. We've been reading it as a church over the last seven weeks. 21 chapters, it's a chapter a day. You could be done in three weeks. We've also assembled on our website, prescottcornerstone.com, a page on the resources page where there's a number of resources to help you think critically and historically about the resurrection. Because I'm not just asking you to believe it because I read you some Bible verses. I'm asking you to believe it and examine it and do your homework because I believe you will find what I have found, that it holds up. If it wasn't true and it was a lie, then I'd be afraid to tell you that. Because I'd be afraid you'd find it out. If you've ever lied before, you're afraid of people finding the truth. You don't want them to do their own homework. But I believe it will stand up to your study and I encourage you to do it. But for the rest of you who aren't in need of doing homework, the nutcases in the room, third, I'd encourage you to hold on to your hope in Jesus and his resurrection to help you navigate life. If you think back to two years ago when we were hoarding toilet paper, Clorox wipes, trying to figure out how to shop online, Some of you who had never used a computer before, you were using a computer to watch church. You figured it out. Bravo, you did it. In New York City, there was a man whose life was changing. And not because of COVID, because of cancer. Tim Keller had pastored Redeemer Church in New York City for decades. And in March of 2020, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Not all cancers are created equal. Some are very survivable, and some are rarely survived. And pancreatic cancer is one of those. And for the last two years, he's been in the fight of his life. Today, he's still alive, and he was asked recently to reflect on the resurrection as someone for whom death is a very near reality. Here's what he said. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. 
Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer, which is certainly relevant for him, is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. Now, before I read you what I'm going to read you next, I want to encourage you that for some of you, Easter is a day that you kind of know all the stories. You know all the answers. But I'd encourage you to not wait for something as terrible as a pancreatic cancer diagnosis to consider what it means for you. You may not get cancer one day, but you will have a crisis of hope. And here's what Keller said just last week. I do think that the great thing about cancer, I gotta stop right there. The great thing about cancer, I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more because I look at Easter and say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. For Keller, Easter is that tool that he's reached for. The hope of the resurrection is the thing that he's turned to. And for the past 2,000 years, across languages, oceans, and cultures, billions of people have found life breaks their hearts. It steals their loved ones, it crushes their dreams, and it takes them to places they never planned on being. But in the midst of life, as beautiful and terrible as it is, in a crisis of hope, they found a living hope. And that's why we're still here today. Because Jesus offers us real and true hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that the hope you offer us is not distant from life, but it's right on the ground in the middle of it. And there's some of us in this room who are navigating hard diagnosis, unexpected turns. We today are not where we thought we would be in life. But none of those things are a surprise. None of those things are too much for you. And I thank you that in the midst of those intense emotions and overwhelming seasons, your hope can be real and present and true. For my friends in this room who are followers of you, who are believers in you, I pray that they might have a fresh experience of your hope this Easter. That it would be for them a living hope that empowers them to hopeful living even in the face of challenging times and a difficult world. But Jesus, I also pray for the people in this room who haven't yet put their faith and trust in you, who haven't experienced the power of your hope in the midst of the worst that life has to throw at us. 
And I pray that they might do their homework, that they might do their own study, that they might decide for themselves what they are going to do for you. Because they won't make it through this life without hope. They can survive weeks without food. They can survive days without water. They can go a few minutes without oxygen, but Jesus, we cannot go a moment without hope. And so if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus before, I want to encourage you, you are not promised tomorrow. But you have been given today. And right now, in this moment today, you could experience a living hope by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You could do that simply by confessing your need for a Savior. Believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And accepting him into your life. You could do that by praying a prayer like the one I'm about to pray. Jesus, I need hope. I need you. I've been reaching for hope and tools to navigate life in so many other places, and they've all fallen short. So today I look to you. I put my faith and trust in you. I open up my life. If you'll have it, take it. Forgive my regrets, my stumbles and my sin. Heal my brokenness and my heart. Make me new. Jesus, I want and need a second chance. Today I give my life to you. Today I put my hope in you. In your name we pray, amen.